What is going on? Welcome to the Land Podcast. This week, we have Greg Glessinger here on the show. If you don't know Greg, he currently resides in Wisconsin and was a team member of Drury's and currently is going to be releasing a new show on the Sportsman's channel, Hunt Works. And I hope you guys really enjoy this conversation. We cover a lot of really interesting topics. Greg has tagged multiple 200-inch deer. He is a habitat fanatic and also has bought and sold a lot of farms over the years. And you're gonna learn some of the things that he would not do again, things he would do again, some mistakes he'll never make again, and some key underwriting items when looking to buy a parcel. So I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. I know I did. Hopefully we'll get Greg here on the show again. Also really quick, if you're brand new to the show, the goal here is very simple. It's to help 100 people buy their first farm. There's three ways to be involved in that list. We just had actually had a couple people added to the list last week. And number one, if you're in the state of Illinois and you're looking in an area that I am confident in helping you, reach out and I'm happy to help you as a buyer's agent. Number two, if you wanna help get connected with someone I would personally do business with, reach out and I will do my best. If I don't know anyone in that area, I'll happily tell you that. And number three, if you just simply learn something from this podcast, let me know. I want to add you to the spreadsheet. Hope you guys really enjoyed this episode. In terms of Exodus news, we just got the 250 spines for the Exodus MMT on the website. So you can be sure to check that out. And we actually have a couple trading programs coming down the pipeline. So be sure to head over to our website, exodusoutdoorgear.com and sign up for the email newsletter and you'll get the announcement there. That is it. Hope you guys have a fantastic week. Here we go. All right, Greg, welcome to the Land Podcast. How's it going? Wonderful, man. It's been uh, finally nice to connect. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have to thank Anthony for making the intro. And uh, we were just talking a little bit earlier. It's it's funny. This is something I've learned just in my travels with work of how small the whitetail community is and like how small some of the good deer neighborhoods are. And when you really break down the entire, I would say, Midwest. And I think we had some similar paths, uh, not at the same time but that overlap. But before we get into all of that, go ahead and introduce yourself for people who maybe aren't familiar with you. Sure. Uh, I was born and raised in Papillion, Nebraska, which is a suburb of Omaha. And uh, growing up, you know, uh, my dad was was not a hunter. Um, he, When he was a, a child, he grew up in Spalding, Nebraska, which is about three hours northwest of Omaha. And out there in the sand hills, they actually hunted for food, and that's how they—that's uh, how they survived. I mean, it wasn't part of it; it was a huge part of what they what they ate. And so, when he got old enough, he was like, "This is not for me." He didn't see hunting as a sport. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Mm -hmm. And um, his brother, Uncle Jerry, they only lived about a block and a half away, and he had three sons, and they took me underneath their wing, and we pheasant hunted pheasant hunted uh, quail and uh, 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 behind bird dogs for. Most of my life is, I mean, is, is, I don't know, I probably was, the rule of thumb was when you were hunting, you had to be a, a ditch dog first before you could carry the dung. So I was a, a gun. So I was a ditch dog first. And then you move up to 12 years old and then you could fi finally hunt. And so we hunted for many years, uh, hunting pheasants and quail. And then I went to school at Northwest Missouri State. And then um, I got into some goose guys there. We did a lot of goose hunting, but I didn't really get involved into big game hunting, uh, deer hunting until I met my wife's brother at the time was my girlfriend. Um, and that was in Northern Minnesota and Aikley, Minnesota. And his, his name was John. And he was in the backyard shooting a Fred bear bow at the time, sighting it in for the very first time. And this is, it's gotta be pushing 30 years ago was my wow. guess. Um, and I didn't know anything about a bow and he was sighting it in and he asked me if I could shoot. And he was six one as well, about the same height, same length. And I said, sure, tell me what to do. And, Obviously, I cut the arrow loose and face 
expression must have said it all because my wife said, you don't need another hobby. So <laughs> that was the beginning of the end. I got back from that trip and um, went right to my local archery store, which is called Little John's Archery in Marshall, Wisconsin, and uh, got to be really good friends with the owner. Uh, John himself and his son, JP, and just sunk my teeth into anything they would tell me. A student of the game to what seminars to, oh man, it's got to be 26, 27 years ago, 28 years ago. Mm-hmm. So late 90s, uh, mid 90s? No, no, let's, let's think about that. Uh, so no, it'd be 20, 20, 25, 25 years ago, 26 years ago, somewhere okay. on there. 90s, That'd be about right. Eight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so I just started reading because back then, you know, there wasn't much uh, internet wise, YouTube, all that stuff wasn't there. So you had to physically go to seminars and read magazines and so forth. And so that's what I did. I just golfed myself anything and then um, had a few leases, uh, trial by fire. I didn't understand wind. I didn't think deer could smell as well as I thought they could. And I learned the hard way and um, just kind of, you know, taught myself in all honesty, besides books and seminars. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I just fell in love with the sport. I think it was a cat and mouse game because they're so damn talented and so, so tough to get close within bow range. Um, that's what really fired me up about trying to get better at the game and never mm-hmm. quit ever since. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Was there a book that stuck with you even today that was foundational for you of starting out as a brand new bow hunter um i read a lot of greg miller books he's a wisconsin guy um i think it, the one was i think it's called Rubline. i believe it's been a while since i pulled it open mm-hmm. um but he he wrote some really good books um there was one one situation where i went to the wisconsin during turkey expo and this is probably 20 years ago and with ralph and vicky and solero they still have their show called archery choice and they were doing a seminar and I would actually take days off from work on Friday to go to the seminars and I would block out and I would schedule all the seminars that I want to go see from Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I would pack my lunch in a backpack and I would go sit and move through rooms and just take notes. Mm-hmm. And the one that was a lasting impression was after the seminar, um, Ralph was leaving. I never met him before in my life. And I said, hey, buddy, I said, I assume you're going to lunch because it's plus or minus noon. He said, I am. I said, if I bought you lunch, could I steal some time? And he said, absolutely. So we went down, bought him lunch. He said, you're going to buy lunch? And I, I said, I'm buying lunch, but I'm not getting anything. And he goes, what's up? And I said, I'm talking. You're eating and I'm talking. <laughs> so uh, we sat and he was gracious enough to give me 35, 45 minutes of his time. And at the very last statement, he said, Greg, I, I got to sum this up. I got to get going. And I'll never forget this. And it's so true. And it still is resident today, and it's a 20, 22-year-old statement, which is, he says, Greg, you can't hunt something that's not there. And he said, if it's not there, then you need to either create it through habitat, or you need to go find a better spot. Mm. But you have to assess it. And that was the moment in time that my bow hunting career changed when I left, is I was putting bow hunting first and habitat second. I was more interested in wind direction, food plots. you know, uh, the setup, all those type of things, I wasn't doing anything other than food plotting. Mm-hmm. And that's when I, I left that going, okay, I need to be a habitat expert first and a bow hunter second. And when I flipped that is when things started to change. Mm-hmm. So did that even change how you started looking at farms or like, cause I Absolutely. assume, cause you're probably like, well, crap, you know, maybe I'm not in a spot where they are there and maybe I don't have 
you, I assume most people want a little bit more instant gratification. Like it takes time to, to build habitat. Maybe you can correct me on that, but did that change how you would look at farms too? It did. Absolutely. Yep. Um, listen to him. I went back and started diving into habitat books and, and more reading about what you can do for wildlife and so forth. And that takes a lot of time, effort, and energy. And the sooner you realize that and put more time into that and less hunting strategies, the better off you're going to be. Mm. Um, and, and so to answer your question, yes. And I'll give you a prime example of it. We're going to jump to one of your questions that you had sent me, which is, I think, number four, mm -hmm. um, if you don't mind, which is yeah. if you were to take what, can you take any of your top 100 tier farms so, and yeah, make so them? Yeah. So I'll, I'll just explain. So one of the questions I have, so like, let's say you randomly pull 100 farms mm -hmm. that, that are listed at any time. There's not a bunch listed right now, but mm -hmm. <laughs> typically you could pull yeah. hundred farms across, let's say the Midwest. Right. How many of those by simple averages would be considered like top tier farms? And then we'll, we can circle back to that, but of the ones that aren't top tier, how many of those could become top tier or fantastic? It's hard to say because, you know, of those hundred, how much is tillable versus habitat? So, I mean, I'd have to start sifting through them, you know, high level fairly quickly through aerials and descriptions. I can sift through most of them. But um, the number one thing that you have to have going in a new farm, which is this is the prime story that you're asking me, is I bought a farm in Missouri and I didn't hunt it for three years. So I love the aerial, but the habitat was bad. The food was horrible. There were some deer there, but not a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, okay, if I create the habitat, I create the food, it's in the right area. It looks bucky, but there are no, there wasn't a whole lot of animals there. So I went in there, created the habitat, built the food, and I didn't hunt it until year three. So I let it sit for three years. Wow. That's what I'm saying is most people don't have the patience to do. And that's what we do is we focus on the habitat. And sometimes it's, it's, you're not going to hunt them for a year or two. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard thing to swallow. But at the end of the day, it ramps up those farms and it's, it's amazing what they'll do. So let's, let's talk about that farm in more detail. So you, the habitat wasn't very good. The food was horrible. So just lay out maybe a rough size of the parcel and, and what it looked like if you had to do it was 240 acres. Mm -hmm. Um, and they had some really thick cover, like cedar thickets beyond thick. I mean, you, I couldn't get on my hands and knees and walk into it. So mm -hmm. people say cedar thickets are a positive. I asked one question when you say that, and I'm going to get a debate with somebody and I'm going to get a <laughs> DM out of this and that's fine. But this is my opinion. Everybody has their own right to their opinion. But if you go into a cedar thicket, that's super thick that you, that you have to get on your hands and knees to get through, you tell me how much deer traffic's in there. Do you see any beds and do you see any, any tracks? I don't. And so that tells me they're not using it. So it's mm -hmm. wasted, wasted property. So what you do always, you go in there and clear it. You cut them down, get some warm season grasses in there, burn them a year later, get some natives coming up. And all of a sudden you got deer bedding in there like thieves. Mm -hmm. um, and then this place didn't have any food at all. And so we started scratching out uh, spots, strategic locations, and we focused a lot on clover because it'd be a year-round food source. And it was, you know, clover is typically 18 to 22% protein. So that's going to be your highest food source that you can do. So we would just go in there and plant, you know, three, four, five-acre food, uh, food plots enough that I had no intentions of ever harvesting for those few couple of years. But I want to make sure they had enough tonnage to get through. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we did and just stayed out of there. 
And so it had the water. So the water was there. It didn't have really good habitat for its cover and bedding. And so we created that, created the food, and then walked away. Mm-hmm. And then watched the trail cameras every year and said, okay, the first year was bleak. The second year got better. The third year, I'm like, wow, it really jumped. Mm. I'm like, okay, now let's go hunt it. So yeah, most people, yeah, that's, that's a hard pill for some people to swallow, but I can imagine, would you say that farm was probably like a two out of 10 with how, how it sat when you bought it? And then I shouldn't have bought it. I mean, the (laughs) reason why I bought it was because it was cheap Uh and it was in a good area. Um, but far as a habitat, most people would have said there's no deer here, which there weren't, there wasn't much. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love the area and I knew that with the South facing slopes and the access and all that, I'm like, if you can create this, it'll come. They just had no reason to stay. They were transit. They were going through there. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing you got to realize when you find a property is, are you have transit deer or do you have deer that are calling it home? If you have transit deer, then obviously the bedding and the habitat is not where it needs to be because if it was, they wouldn't be transit deer. Mm. And so you have to assess that to figure out how can I create this from a transit property to a true home property. And that's truly through the bedding process. And we can go into that too, but everybody has their, you know, different ideas of that through warm season grasses and so forth. But yeah, what's your take on that? I I like a mix personally. I think um, South facing slopes with warm season grasses is huge. That's great thermal. Um, they like their even when it comes to late season, you'll find a lot of sheds in there as well. Um, they love it. Um, if someone said, if I could have a, uh, an ideal farm, I would say, you know, probably a 40% or 35% timber and the rest open. Mm. And the reason why I would say that is because I can create the bedding where I want it and create the food where I want it and create the corridors where I want it. If you have too much timber, it works against you. Um, in my opinion. Um, and so I know in Michigan and some of those places, you don't have much of a choice. I get that. But if you had a choice, I like that 30 to 45% timber and the rest open ground that you get to mip, mip, and even say it, Manipulate. kind of change up to, <laughs> yeah. yeah, change yeah. up what you want, want, want to do. So, mm-hmm. um, but it takes a lot of work and that's, that's where, you know, the rubber meets the road. And some guys say it's too much work, but at the end of the day, if you do it, it's a factor of 10. And once you get those warm season grasses established, you know, you burn them every three or four years, depending on the stand in the winter. And it becomes a, a really amazing opportunity for the wildlife. And that goes for turkeys and pheasants and quail. It goes right down the list. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, and the, but the 40% timber, is your strategy just to leave that alone? Or are you doing heavy TSI? I'm sure it depends on the on the actual stand of timber, obviously. But is there any it rules does. of thumb? It does. Yep. Um, obviously, we're not going to cut the money trees. We're going to save those, and we're going to cut you know box elders and other trees. But yeah, we definitely do a, our fair share of TSI um, to make sure they have woody brows. Um, that is one thing I learned early on. You know, you've got to have food 365 days a year. And if you don't, um, they're going to go to the neighbors. And so I always look at these farms and say, hey, if I was a whitetail. Am I achieving 365 days of comfort, food, water, and cover? And if I was a whitetail, would I come here and stay? If I can answer that mm-hmm. question and say yes, then I've achieved my goal. If I, if I can you know, blow holes in my plan and say I'm missing A, B, C, and D, then i got to get to work. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't stop them from leaving, but I don't want to give them a reason to leave. Mm-hmm. And that's what we focus our attention on. Is that achievable for, let's say, smaller parcels, so something between 20 and 60 acres, in your opinion? 
Well, I think I, it, it all depends on, on how that lays and what's beside you. You know, there's a lot of natural barriers that deer don't want to cross, like interstates. They Most of them don't. Good-sized highways, some of them don't. So, uh, it, you know, are you uh, against a huge major tillable field that they're only going to go out there once, you know, to go out there I mean, in destination, night, yeah. you know, at night? So there's a whole lot of things that people ask, give me the silver bullet. Well, I, I don't know if there really is one because it all <laughs> sure. depends on the property that you have. And I can look at an aerial and I don't even have to go there and say, here's what I would do um, based on what you have. But I will tell you this, and one of your questions you were prepping me for is, I think, what, what is the most, one of the most important attributes of looking for a property? Mm-hmm. If I had to tell you one thing, I would say access is number one. The rest of the stuff I can build. I can build ponds. I can build, I can build uh, bedding, and I can build food. But I cannot change the access to the farm. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have good access, what I mean by that is, how many wind directions can you hunt the farm based on good access without them knowing that you're coming and leaving? Mm-hmm. So our whole goal is when we hunt deer, we don't want them to know they're hunting because our access is so good through warm season grasses, through how we get to them and how we leave and so forth. So access to me is by far the number one issue. And most guys, um, I'm not so sure, take that to the degree that I wish they would. So there's, I mean, if you look at a farm and it, let's say it has west access only and you have to walk through the bulk of the property, let's say open hardwoods or something that isn't very conducive for getting in and out uh, sneakily, that's just like, uh, probably you're probably not interested in that parcel. I look at a lot of properties by aerial and I won't, I won't jump in the truck because the access tells me it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. But to your, to your question, yes, because as you know, the predominant winds in the in the fall are what north northwest, and northwest yeah, yeah right northwest is predominant wind so we've had a lot of south winds here the last we, we have of- we yeah. have but you got to play the odds right sure. you got to go with the odds so the yeah. odds are that time of year it's more often going to be a northwest wind so if you play the odds how how well does your farm set up for northwest wind if it doesn't then you better reconsider either access trying to get an easement through somebody else or how you fix it Um, because more often than not, when I sit down and talk to guys on -on one-on-one, more often than not, when I let them tell the story and we pull up the map and they walk me through their access, I look at them five to 10 minutes into the conversation. I said, you are the worst enemy. Uh You are killing your own self. Yeah. And they look at you, how? And I said, well, because you're walking right by the bedding, you're Mm -hmm. throwing your cast over the other side. They know you're there or they're gone before you even get there. Mm -hmm. And Access is by far number one. There's not a close second. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's uh, yeah, in my that's, opinion. Sure. I mean, it, yeah. I think to to your point, to for the goal of hunting them without them knowing that they're getting hunted heavily. I mean, that, that you can't do that without good access. There's no way around it. No. And it, I've I've hunted small partials. I've had a 26 acre piece that was on silent. I've had some 40s and some 80s, and it magnifies what I'm explaining because you don't have room to push them around. Mm-hmm. They're going to go to the neighbors. So you, Right, unless you're going to push in the neighbors. Mm-hmm. So you got to make sure that your your access, your exit and entry is bulletproof. And whatever that is, if that's mowing a trail or whatever that is to, to make sure the quietness and the wind's in your favor all the time. And you may have to sit, you know, past an hour past dark to make sure they, they move off a food plot. Well, then sit in a tree an hour past dark to make sure they leave. Because you don't have a whole lot of bumper space for to push them off. Yeah. And so those things... You got to keep in mind, you know, um, but if you do it, 
and you do it well. And if you hunt, here's another thing. If you hunt less, you will kill more because you're not putting pressure on your property, especially on smaller pieces. So if you play the wind right and the, and the pressure and all put all the, the weather bullet points in your favor and hunt less, you will kill more because there's less pressure and less scent laying down. Every time you, well, I mean, how often, how often, Jake, do you talk to somebody and they kill on their first time in? I mean, that's the, that's the majority. That's what most people preach. It's the first set's the best set of the year. Mm -hmm. And so make sure you stack it up in your favor the best that you can. If there's a deer that's in the area that you, you know that you want to chase. Well, then don't go in there five or six, seven times on marginal winds. Go on, go on a wind that's in, you know, the best for you with a good pressure and the right wind. And there's probably a good chance you're going to see him. Mm -hmm. And there's a good chance you're going to get out of there without him knowing you, you were there. Yeah. That, do you, was that a acquired skill that you learned over time? Because I think most, just, this is just my opinion. And this is, I'm guilty of this too. It's like, you feel guilty if you don't go and you feel like, well, gosh, how am I, how am I going to get better if I don't go out and get reps? That's the, that's the general thought. But then I, you know, almost every uh, successful hunter that's, I would say at your level of success and also your level of experience, like that's one of the most consistent things they all say, like less is more. Yeah. hundred percent. It's patience. If you look at anybody who, who harvests mature buck on a consistent basis, there's one thing that they all have in common is patience. They are playing um, chess while everybody else is playing checkers. Mm -hmm. and they just patiently wait, patiently wait. And sometimes they miss out. Sure. They're not going to hit it all the time, but they're not that good all the time. If they're not doing something right. I mean, these guys are everybody that you're, you're talking about or thinking about it's patience. And it's because of everything that they line up in their favor. They wait to go in. Mm -hmm. um, not once in a while they may push it, but for the most part, you know, they're, they're being patient. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's one thing I had to learn the hard way. Cause I, I, there are times I'm very aggressive. Um, when it, when it, when it calls to be aggressive, my foot's through the floor, I'm, I'm gassing the pedal more often than not, um, feeding deer forward. We're very passive, non-aggressive because the less aggressive you are, the more often the deer will be deer and they'll be less pressured and they walk through your farm, less pressured and they act like less pressured deer, which means they're on their hoof more in daylight and less, which gives you more opportunity to harvest them. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you can play that game, you're going to have a more opportunity to harvest what you're looking for because they're on their feet more. But mm -hmm. if you're going to continue to pressure them, you're just going to put them into, you know, nocturnal deer or close to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Push them off, push them off your farm. And I imagine being more concise and more patient is, is even more imperative on smaller parcels too, to your point. Like 100%. You're going to push them off that 40 way easier than let's say a 240. Like, oh, okay, he's on the other part of the farm. We, we can start over to some, That's right. to some degree. Yeah. So, and this is something, I mean, you've tagged multiple deer that I think most people would consider a deer of a lifetime. And so to me, that, that is a, a token of your ability to execute against plans. What do you think has really helped you enable to, to have the success that you, that you, you've earned over the years? You had to boil Are you talking about harvesting the deer or the whole setup and the, and the land or walk me through what you're more, cause there, there's two, there's, there's like five <laughs> questions yeah, there. I know. Yeah, that's, that's certainly fair. I would say for the, for the context of this, I would say the access, meaning like the, the parcels that you're, you're actually hunting mm -hmm. and then how you, so like the place and hunting the deer that exists. Cause that, that was obviously imperative uh, throughout mm -hmm. your, through the years. So we'll start with that and then I'll, I'll go, go okay. down uh, deeper in the wormhole. So once we identify the one we really want to chase, which starts the year before, 
Um, so, and I'll call the largest deal I ever killed was 239. So we'll talk about him because his story is quite interesting. So we found his shed that spring, um, and that, and he went 185 and change. Um, so I was like, okay, we know he's living here. So we put all of our attention on that side of the farm. Uh, we, we did a burn. We did a whole bunch of TSI improvement. We made sure the food plots were dialed in. We gave everything possible to go, you know what? There's no reason for him not to stay here. So we took all of our time and effort and energy off of other projects and put it on that particular side of the farm. Mm. And um, lucky enough, he showed up. Uh, we, we did our first, first side, first sit in. Uh, was the uh, October, was it October 30th? October so 30th, not, October 29th. Not October 1st is what you're saying. No, it wasn't. <laughs> and um, we, we waited that long mm-hmm. um, because I wanted the, the right pressure and the right wind. And we waited. And um, obviously, we got them on the first sit. Um, everything just worked out perfectly. But all the homework was done. You don't kill them in the fall. You kill them in the spring. Um, well, all the work that you're going to lay down. So mm-hmm. if you do the right work during the spring and during the summer, then it makes the fall, I guess I wouldn't say a lot easier, but it puts your chances up much greater because you have so much more confidence because you know you've done everything you can possibly do. Now, does the deer show up or not? You, you don't know, but we had Reconyx cameras and he was you know, frequent there quite often. And we had flanked him with a lot of cameras and we figured that he was only living in a 60-acre section. Mm-hmm. So I was walking in there very delicately, making sure that he's not living that far. So we made sure that we had everything in our favor because he was so tight mm-hmm. and it ended up panning out. Mm-hmm. And so when you're doing those projects too, is that, are you in and out? Like, are you, okay, I'm, I'm getting some help and I'm going to try to knock out the majority of these projects one weekend and then be out of there. Or is that something that kind of lingers throughout the entire spring. No, it, it lingers. I mean, I'm not, when it comes to work, you know, we can get real sensitive on all this stuff. And long as a tractor's by you and you're doing stuff or equipment or a truck or something, I'm really not all that concerned about it. I mean, we, we're constantly working on the farms all the time. And I haven't seen anything negative because of it. Because um, work's got to get done. Yeah. I mean, you just can't, you know, kind of be soft-footed around it. So we just attack it the best we know how. And we try not to prolong it, for sure. We get on a project, we try to finish as fast as we can within weather reasonability but and get out of there. But yeah, I mean, we just attack the list and get it done and and um, move on to the next one. Mm-hmm. And you kept mentioning the right pressure for for some of these uh, high high value sits. What does that what does that mean to you? Can you can you lay down the foundation? You know, now? it's it's in that that low 30s, the 31 you know, definitely not in the 29s. Um, you know, you can, you can watch it and, and I'll give, you know, Drew Outdoors DeerCast a plug. I mean, if, if you don't have that app, um, I think you're doing yourself a serious disjustice if you're a whitetail hunter. I mean, they put it all right there for you. If you follow that uh, more often than not, when they say it's good or great, it's probably going to be a good or great day for you. Yes, sometimes they're off, but they're playing percentages too. And more often than not, the the numbers are are what they are, and they they hardly, very seldom miss it. Mm-hmm. And so, if I was somebody, I would recommend getting that app just for that tool alone, mm-hmm. um, because it's quite remarkable. And so, October thirtieth, you said, is when you guys went in for the first time. That was truly the first good, like, or I guess would grade or like when all those conditions aligned, was there any other times that like, let's say October 23rd or like yeah, October there 14th? Was. It was, uh, it was October 16th and was, it was opening day of Missouri youth season. 
And my son was in camp and we've been doing our youth season with him forever. And Casey, uh, our camera guy said, man, you know where we should be. And I said, I know where we should be. Um, but there's no way I can cut loose on Derek's hunt. You know, he's, he's, he's in school and this is the only weekend he gets to go. So I obviously put that on the back burner and put Derek on the front. So, um, it, it all worked out, but yeah, I was definitely thinking when we went to Missouri of chasing Derek's deer, I was like, man, I know where I should be, but was he there? We Did he, was he on the camera and where you ended up killing? Him uh, he 16? was, yeah, <laughs> he was, which yeah. made it a little deeper. Yeah. Well, it all, it all worked out. It all panned out. It all worked out. Yeah. yeah. No, that's sure. great. So this is, this is something that kind of asked you earlier, but the, like, I think it's hard for, for me personally to understand, like I said, when you randomly pull a hundred farms and let's say these are mixed use properties. So these aren't, none of these are hundred percent tillable, but on law of averages, these are just mixed use recreational parcels. So you have a hundred of them. You just, we randomly pull them from the syndication. How many of those by just a, a random percentage would you say would be worth looking at and potentially buying? That's really hard to say because they, they might be a hundred for a hundred without looking at them all. It's hard to say. Well, I um, guess draw that off the, like, let's say the last hundred farms you looked at online, how many of them would be like, oh yeah, that's pretty nice. Wow. That's a good question. Um, I will tell you this. I very rarely buy farms just because I've, I've made so many mistakes over the years that I know what I'm looking for. And, and when they pop, I move. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am on the phone with a real estate agent. Um, I am in route making plans. How fast can I get there? Because mm -hmm. uh, I know what I'm looking for. And in a mind, if I'm, if I'm in the truck going, I've probably already bought it mentally. Mm -hmm. I'm just validating what I think should be there mm. because so, I want to be boots. I want to be boots on the ground. Yeah. How often do you go and you're disappointed and you're like, oh, this looks drastically different. I guess there's, I mean, pictures on the listing, but just I'm picturing someone looking at Google earth or looking on, on X. More or often or than not. No, I, okay. I don't. If, if mm -hmm. I'm going in the truck, it's usually because I know what I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. And I studied it well enough and done my homework that, and I know the area that I'm going. Mm -hmm. So you said you made a bunch of mistakes over the years. What are some of those? Do you have any horror stories or just like, oh my gosh, I will never do that again stories? Uh, I had a piece that was 240 acres and it only had access from the West. And it was very early on in my career. Um, it's what I could afford. And um, I thought I could make it work. And I... Uh, I bought that farm. I think Derek was three. It might've been two. He was just walking. Um, so it might've been two. Uh, put it this way. He did. He helped me do food plot samplings and he was shorter than the five gallon bucket. I'll tell you that. <laughs> okay. So he was probably two or three years old. So um, he, I thought I could, I could basically change it because the guy I bought it from was a white tail guy, but he really wasn't a habitat guy. And I'm like, God, there's just so much potential here. But the problem, and that's where I learned this from was the best betting I had was in the back and it was, it was hard for me to get in and out of there without blowing it up. And the only way I could do there is go in there an hour before dark and stay an hour after dark. Mm -hmm. But I knew I could hear him leaving every time I, I went, I, I exited. So if you went back there, we call it the bowl because it was kind of a bowl effect. I said, when you went back there, if you went back, there's an all day sit, there's no ifs, ands or buts. You mm -hmm. were going to go for the day. Um, so I realized then that that's not something you can sustain, um, and do that all the time. And so that's what cut my teeth on saying access is by far the number one thing. Cause I only had access from the West. 
Mm-hmm. This was a question I wanted to ask you earlier too. So you, a first generation whitetail hunter, I mean, that's really the best way to describe it. You, you started in the late nineties when, why did you want to buy your first piece of land? Like what, what inspired you? Like, okay, I really want to take whitetail hunting to the next level. And I feel like in order to do so, I need to own my own land. Was that your thought process or how did that work? Uh, it's two-sided. One, my dad's a farmer today at 82. He still farms, oh, uh, what, four or 500 acres at 82. So I was born, born and raised behind a John Deere tractor. So I was driving a tractor when I was, I don't know, nine, probably 10. Um, and so I understood the value of dirt and understood that it was a great investment, let alone. And so um, that was part of it. The other part of it was the more I learned, the more I wanted to control what I was doing. And I did a couple leases early on and leases can be great. Um, the downside of a lease is if you make a spot better, uh, which in my particular case happened, um, nobody in their family hunted. I was an older gentleman, very nice. And I put a ton of sweat equity into it, made the spot better. Then all of a sudden deer were getting bigger and more often and more frequent. And all of a sudden a grandson came out of the woodwork and started wanting to go deer hunting. Well, you, you know the rest of the story. I, I lost the lease. Mm-hmm. So uh, that point, I'm like, if I'm going to put time and energy into something that I can control, I want to own it because then it controls my own destiny. Because right there, I was only getting a 12-month return on all the work I was doing. Mm-hmm. Which if you're okay with that, you're okay with that. I wasn't. Um, and so that's when I changed my mindset that I want to own the dirt. Mm-hmm. And then so throughout that process, I feel recreational land has changed like land in general has that this whole category has really matured. I would say in the last 15 years, especially what was that like then versus trying to buy a farm now today, or it was Uh, very similar. No, it wasn't. Um, went to a lot of places that whitetail, you know, hunters buying land was really not a thing. Um, it was becoming a thing, but not like it is today. The prices back then were way cheaper than they are now. Um, uh, so that, that's hard for me to get my head around, but the deer are better today than what they were years ago too. So there's some trickle down effects of what's going on. I mean, when you look at this industry through YouTube and the internet and the sharing of knowledge podcasts, like we're doing tonight, there's just so much more knowledge that people can learn so much faster Mm-hmm. than what they used to be. And so people are getting better at the game way quicker. And they're becoming way more serious. I mean, shoot, way back when, there's only a couple food plot seed companies, Biologic <laughs> and Whitestell Institute. Yeah. Now, I mean, you can't go to a deer and turkey expo. And I was at the Hour Deer Classic last weekend. I think I counted 13 or 14 deer seeds, yeah. uh, food plot seeds. Mm-hmm. And, you know, only a t- couple of them I actually knew. The other ones I've never heard of. So there's just so much more avenue out there to learn. And as more knowledge gets out there, people get better. And the land around neighbors are getting better. More people are getting serious about it and management gear and so forth. So the game is stepping up way more than what it started way back when I started. Mm -hmm. And so as a investor and also land buyer, is that all for the better? Like, Because the main reason I ask is I felt like there was a lot more inefficiencies in the market, let's say 15 years ago. And I feel like that's only going to continue. The market's only going to get more efficient as time goes on with, with information. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, I agree with you. It, it is. Um, I think you got to be a smart, educated buyer. I think you got to know where you're looking, pay attention to the trends, um, you know, make friends of real estate agents that are in the area you're looking on and play close to them and check their websites as often as, as you possibly can. And 
um, stay, stay in tune to the game because it moves a lot. There's dips and ups and downs and all kinds of different things going on. But um, staying engaged is the, is the biggest thing and staying engaged with the right. And everybody, there's different pockets throughout the country that some real estates are better. Agents are better than others. Companies are better than others. Um, I work with a lot of different companies and a lot of different agents. Um, they all have their specialty. And I just make sure that I, I talk to them all the time, just mm-hmm. see what's going on. Mm-hmm. So talking about the, what's, what's your take on the land trend right now? I mean, where are we at today? And, and what is your it's crazy? Psyche? It is crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> so like, I would, I would, I would never guessed. <clears throat> I, I just got a call two night, two and a half hours ago, a property really close to me is going to go up for sale. Uh, and it, it's just under 8,000 an acre, no income. Wow. Curly wreck. Wow. And he said, are you interested? And I said, no. Mm-hmm. I said, I can't, there's no way. And I go, he goes, do you think you're selling? He goes, I don't know. Well, we're going to find out. Mm-hmm. So I, I just can't, I just can't put my head around that. So do you, what, cause here's, I obviously pay attention to it as well. And it's so hard to, to guess and anticipate and pontificate on what the future looks like. What do you think the next 12 months would potentially look like for the landmark? Cause we have seen an incredible run every time. The I last like, two years, what, yeah. 18, 20%. I don't know. Yeah, in some areas more than that, in in different yeah. categories. And so, do you think there's a stabilization? Do you think it continues to keep going? Like the interest rates have gone up drastically, but it seems like it hasn't slowed stuff down. Commodity. Well, there's a lot of cash high. out there right now, and yes. a lot of 1031 money from what from what I'm reading and what I'm my my information and my sources are telling me. So, mm-hmm. my biggest question is: um, back in the 80s um, or in 2008, let's go. We only have to go back to the 80s, but if we went to 2008, you know, we had some serious crash. And I feel like we're on the bubble of this because it's ramping up so hard and so fast. The interest rates are now going up. And the people who have purchased land in the last 24 months on a three to five year balloon, I I anticipate, I don't know, but I anticipate once they come off that balloon and if the interest rates are still the way they are today, they will not be able to afford what they own. Mm. And so if things don't change, which is a big if, then you're going to see a lot more sellers than buyers. And that's going to drive the market back down. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think, but to the same point, though, I wonder, is there still enough 1031 money floating around and then enough cash floating around to to prop, to continue to prop these prices for a little bit longer? Or is that like on a 36-month timeline? I don't know. I think it all depends on this interest rate. You know, mm-hmm. there is only so much cash to be held. But right now, there's not a lot of farms for sale. So the inventory is low. Mm-hmm. So that's driving the price high. And the reason why is because, let's face it, the stock market's been very volatile here for the last 18 to 24 months. And the politics mm-hmm. is another podcast we can talk about. Not tonight, but, you know, <laughs> so everybody's like, you know, they want something stable. Well, what's stable? Land. An 80 will always be an 80. It mm-hmm. may go up, it may go down, but it's always going to be an 80. So a lot of people who are not in the land business are getting in the land business purely because it's stable. Mm-hmm. And so it's really going to blow down this interest rate, in my opinion, and see if these balloons come up. But right now it's, it's at a rate that I, it's hard for me to understand. Mm-hmm. It don't yeah, make sense. It, but, and then it's, it's my, my whole thing is like, like and t- go back and look 10 years from now and just, it'll be a fun period to look back and see like, Oh, well, this makes a lot more sense. Like everything makes more sense in hindsight, but when you're on the verge of when, like how volatile things are, it's hard to formulate a, a true opinion that makes sense. Because in ten years, it'll make way, way like, oh, that's 
that's why that's what happened with the land market in 2025. Like, but no, that makes sense. I think to your point, just the lack of inventory is obviously keeping prices where they're at and, and, and still yeah. climbing. Are you in the, are you still in a buying mode? If you see something that you really like that you're going to hop in the truck and head right to? Um, I will buy if the numbers right and it makes sense. I don't, I'm a very conservative buyer. I don't, there's a lot of people out there that's just, you know, money is they're chasing the white tail across the countryside more than they're chasing the dollar in a, in a reasonable set, a reasonable mindset. So I try to stay as my wife disagrees with me, but <laughs> I try to stay somewhat reasonable because some of these prices I've walked away some farms that I would like to buy, but I, I don't, I don't think the value is there and it scares me what's going to happen in 24 to 36 months. So uh, what was, I don't what do you, know. What do you mean by what scares you? Meaning they could continue to rise or that you just want to preserve cash? I think they're going to fall. I, th I think the prices that we're seeing um, are just so high that I don't understand. When you can buy a tillable farm less than what you're buying a rec farm, to me, that's backwards. Mm, that's fair. Is, is how I'm coming with analogy. So if you go buy a, you know, 85 or 90% tillable farm in these Midwestern states that are good white till country and you can buy one plus or minus the same dollars and cents or a little less mm -hmm. i'm not so sure you should buy a rec farm at let's just, let's just call it six thousand dollars an acre if you can go buy a rec farm for six and you can buy a tillable farm that's going to give you four or five six percent return i don't know if that's a good smart investment mm -hmm. so when you're looking to underwrite a deal that you may purchase is the it sounds like the income is pretty important in terms of well what i always try to do is i always have I always make sure that farm, if I can't, if I, if it doesn't have it, can I create it? Can I create enough uh, income to offset the taxes, pay for my food plots and give me a little bit coin in there to do land improvements? Mm -hmm. Because if you go after a white tail property, a true white tail property, recreational property, you're going to have to let a lot of income go. If you have a huge income farm, it's not going to be a good rec farm. Mm -hmm. You can't have both. It just doesn't exist. Well, more often than not, it doesn't exist. So, you got to chase one or the other, but if you go after, you know, a really good rec farm, you can create some tillable and so forth. You know, you got to know your soils and where you can put some stuff in, but I always make sure it pays for itself because I always said, once this farm is paid off, I don't want to have to pay for it every year to go use that's it. Good. Yeah. That's good. I want to make sure it's self-sustainable. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. That makes, uh, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Do you think, what percentage of those, like do all, all the farms that you purchase, have they followed that rule or has there ever been yes. one that's like, okay, so that's no, a hard rule. They all follow that rule. Uh-huh. Okay. Yep. They all make enough that I can, once the note's paid for, that they will substantiate, they will hold their own. Okay. Food, food plot expenses and taxes and some, you know, land improvements. I'm not talking about a lot, but enough that if I didn't want to do anything that year and just do food plots and pay taxes, I'm not dipping in my pocket. That's a great piece of advice. Yeah. So... Okay, so that that was one of the questions I was going to ask in terms of just absolute deal breakers. So one of them, it's got to pay for itself, meaning the taxes and some slight improvements. Yeah, uh, access is huge. How about number one? Yeah, how about just neighborhoods? Is are like when you're going into an area, maybe you're not super familiar. You're going to rely on an agent. How much does the neighborhood play into a factor? On let's say oh, it's huge. A one hundred, uh, like let's say something between eighty and one hundred sixty acres. So not like a not like a three hundred, yeah. but something yeah. you know. I would say mid-tier. It's huge. Um, do your homework of the neighbors. Know who they are. Um, you know, Hunt on X is a great tool for that. 
um, plot maps, old fashioned plot maps. It's worth the 20, 25 bucks to go get one. Um, do your homework, ask around, um, you know, that type of scenario. Um, and look at land barriers. You have a huge creek at X, you know, like the one that you and I have discussed earlier on the podcast before we mm-hmm. jumped on. Mm-hmm. There's that huge river there was a natural barrier. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things that it's uh, homework is key for sure. Any any other things that are top of mind every time you go look at a farm that outside of those three? Um, not really. I mean, access because you can create all the habitat, water and cover and all that other stuff and food plots. But I would say the neighborhood and access is what I'm really going to spend a lot of time on. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you can get on the same page with your neighbors and get along, um, it'll save you a lot of stress. It'll make you a lot more enjoyable to hunt, knowing that if you say, hey, this three-year-old, we're going to let go, and he jumps the fence, and you know, um, Tommy across the fence says, hey, I, I got you. We're, we're not going to shoot him. That's a huge peace of mind. That, that's when hunting becomes fun. When hunting becomes competitive, when you're like, man, if I let him go, is he going to shoot him? Well, I just might as well shoot him. Well, then what's the point? Yeah. What's the point? And that's something that we were talking about before, too, is just um, let's just talk about age structure of of bucks and and sometimes maybe what could be a shortcoming for an area. So you were talking about kind of that scenario or a similar scenario. Do you want to discuss that a little bit? Just like the delayed gratification of. Yeah, I think, I think most guys go into a farm to buy a new farm and obviously it's, it's, it's expensive. Land's not cheap and they want to, they want to go in there and experience what they paid for. Well, I I understand it. I get it. Um, I don't blame them, but your actions will have a downstream effect. So if you go in there and start shooting a bunch of two and three-year-olds, you got to look at yourself in the mirror and go, okay, did I just shoot my crop for the next year or two? So you got to be really strategic on what you're going to harvest and what age structure you're chasing. You know, we try to chase a minimum of five. We really try to focus on six, seven, and eights is really what we try to do. Uh, we won't we won't shoot anything. I mean, we'll, we will flat out let them go. Um, and when you start doing that, it will take you a couple of years and you'll have to swallow your pride and let, let all that go. But once you start into that rhythm, You'll have so much more mature bucks in your area. Your experience will be tenfold than what it was two years ago if you would have shot those two and three-year-olds. If you can sit on your hands and not and just watch and just let those deer go, you'll be blown away 24 months later of what your farm will be like and the experience that you're going to have versus what you would have otherwise. Mm -hmm. And I think to your point, it it is a hard a hard thing to do because and this is the scenario most people have like they saved up their money for a very long time yep. they worked really hard maybe they had two jobs to buy yep. their first farm and to your point for someone to not realize kind of the gain of their investment meaning good hunting opportunities meant for two years but then at the same point if they do sell the farm short meaning they're shooting deer that maybe should have been another year or two and then it's not like they shoot that deer and they're like, that's awesome. But it's not like, oh my gosh, this is the deer that I've always dreamed about. This is what, this is why I did it. And it's just kind of like a, a we've all, I'm, I'm guilty. Like you shoot a nice deer and you're like, oh, like it was cool. But in reality, it's like, it's not the the white whale you're really chasing. And I think that the, the point I'm getting is like, don't sell yourself short. Yeah, I think that's well said, you know, and, and I'm not here to change people's mind of taking away the enjoyment of the hunt. Everybody gets to find what they want to do. But you asked me a question on how can we, you know, take the land to the next level. And if you're just going out there and just want to enjoy it and shoot, you know, every three-year-old, knock yourself out. If that's what you want to do, go do it. But my question to you is this. After you shoot a couple of them, 
why do you need to keep shooting more of them? Go out and shoot some does because the meat's going to be better. And wouldn't it be neat to see a, a three-year-old turn into a four and a four-year-old turn into a five? I mean, I'm at the point now, I just enjoy watching them and, and watching the growth of the deer and seeing them change and age and so forth. That's to me is, you know, 85% of the fun. Um, so, but I don't want to be Debbie Downer and tell people what they, you know, can't do. Sure. Um, I'm just trying to enhance how you can take your, your property to the next level. And to do that is age structure. Mm-hmm. And that's the best way to do it. Yeah. And, I, and I'm in total agreement too. Like I won't, I think people should shoot what makes them happy, but I think they should ask themselves the bigger question of like, kind of you mentioned, like you've shot 10, 130 inch deer. Like the first probably one, two, three were a huge accomplishment, but I guarantee you probably don't have the same level, level of satisfaction on seven, eight, nine, no. 10. You that's don't. Just, yeah. And so just, there's, there's no way around it. So that's, that's really interesting. So what would, what would be a piece of advice you'd give someone that is looking to buy their first farm? They're diligently saving up for the down payment. And what is this something that with all that, that person right now is listening, what's something that you wish you knew when you started that hopefully you can share to this person before they write the check to buy their first farm? My, my biggest mistake in my very first farm was at 80 was uh, and we talked a little bit earlier was access. It was horrible access. And I did not understand access to the level that I do now. And I only had East access. Um, that was it. Mm. And it, it really crippled me. Um, it was really hard. So, um, it was great on, on North and Northwest winds, but a lot of betting was in the four North west corner and on the north side and a lot of the deer went from north to south and so it was very hard for me to get in and out of there without blowing stuff up sure. and so that's the number one thing that i continue to talk about is understanding multiple access points on a property that you're going to buy and if you don't you better understand that you're going to be limited mm-hmm. and if that's okay that's okay mm-hmm. So with the same with, and I'm going to challenge you a little bit on this. So let's say you're, you're hunting really efficiently, meaning you're trying to go in on that first sit. Can you get away with, let's say, okay to poor access. If you're really trying to be surgical with, with trying to kill a deer and you're only hunting there like three times, four times. Yeah. Well, what I would do is I would make sure that my, my throwaways were covered because it's, it's one thing for a deer to hear you. It's a different thing. If they see you and smell you, I don't care if they hear me. I really don't because in their mind, they're like, okay, is that a coyote? Is that another deer? You know, they, they can't process that. But if they see you and smell you, they process that. Mm. And so we have a lot of visual barriers to and from us to get us in and out of where that be cedar, cedar trees that we cut that we piled up. Maybe it's warm season grasses that are eight, nine feet tall that, you know, we, we get out of our set within eight to 10 feet. We're behind a nine foot wall and we're gone. We do many things like that so that when it, or, or maybe we're one of my favorite sets is the, the base of the set is literally three feet from a crick. Mm. So the minute we're down, we're gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, they can't see us. They'll, they'll be able to hear us crock in the creek and splash in the water, but they can't process that. Mm. And so I, we spent a lot of time with that. And so to your point, if you have really good access and covering your access, you'll be able to hunt it more because they don't have a clue you're there. Mm-hmm. So in reality, it sounds like in order to get more out of your farm, more enjoyment, concealing your access is one of the most important improvements. If you 100%. have marginal access, hundred percent. That's where I'd, I'd focus 
putting the food where you want them to be based on the access that you have. So gear your farm based around your access so that you know based on a northwest wind or whatever whatever wind's going to line up your farm the best, make sure you put the plot in your favor based on your access to and from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, do you think we make it too hard on ourselves sometimes? Like you, the way you eloquently said that makes it seem very simple. But I think some people, they look at it and they have all these big plans. And it's like the 80-20 rule. You're going to get 80% of your success from just doing this 20% of the project. Would you, I mean, is that a fair thing to say? I think you're spot on. We overthink it. Yeah. 100%. We give the deer a lot more credit than what they deserve. And we become our own problem. For sure. What, was there ever a state? Did you have to learn that through trial and error? Where when? Oh yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've screwed up so many times. It, it's, <laughs> I mean, the cuts deep, you know. But that's those are the ones you learn the best on. And when you when they hurt, you pay attention to them, and then you don't make those mistakes again. Mm-hmm. And you know, we I talk about this a lot. Is when you're when you're when you're in a tree stand or or box blind, whatever. If you're out hunting, and you're watching deer watch it with intent and we we use an app on our phone called notes and we make notes and literally i'm watching the deer traffic if 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 a shooter is not out there i'm watching patterns i'm watching how many bucks how many does where they entering where they're exiting from where they're moving through how they're moving through the food plot what part of the food plot they like better did we fertilize one side better than the other is one different than the other you know they're they're, they're telling you a story every time you do a sit the question is, are you sitting there with intent to take the information down? So my goal is one thing, is either we're going to harvest something, meaning tip over an animal, or guarantee we're going to harvest information. But we're going to harvest something. Mm-hmm. And we take a lot of pride in doing that. And we treat, we tweak sets every single year because of that information. Mm-hmm. Just- and so we're always constantly making the sets better because of how we're observing and making notes. Mm-hmm. It's constantly optimizing, trying to get that edge. Just, yes. just get a slightly better odds. It may be a half a point better, maybe a full percent point better. Heck, it may be just moving the blind three or four feet or 10 feet any direction. Mm-hmm. And with a bow, 10 feet, 15 feet could be a difference Everything. between getting one and not getting one. Yeah. And so we're constantly going, man, or we should, you know what, this, bl- this blind should be turned 20 degrees. Or you know what, we need to move it 25 feet this direction. Or we're constantly making adjustments mm. constantly. Mm. That's, I think that's a really good piece of advice. And I think I would challenge everyone to, when you're out there on your farm the next time, ask yourself that question, maybe go look at your old trusty stand. Is that the best? And maybe it is the best spot, or maybe it needs to be three feet higher, four feet lower, something just little like that. But if you pay attention to your traffic and you look at what you're doing, you're like, man, we could have killed, you know, 70% of the deer tonight, if this blind would have been, or if this set would have been over there, mm-hmm. you know? So they, they all tell you a story. Most people, most people hunt to hunt, but they don't hunt for information. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the difference. Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, we've, we've covered a lot of this stuff, but maybe there's something that we haven't hit on that, that you- that you think is worth sharing, but what do you think most farms lack on a law of averages to me? And I'm going to oh, answer the simple. question for you. It's, oh, go ahead. it's food 365 days a year. Okay. So talk just a little bit more. Like, what does that look like? What does a, a successful 365 food program look like for you? There is a farm that I purchased from a gentleman and he could never kill anything larger than 170 inch deer. He had it for several years. He says, Craig, this farm will never produce booners. It's just not there. I think he shot one. He shot a lot of fifties and a lot of sixties. That's kind of what he was the kind of the, the glass ceiling was 
was the glass ceiling was mid sixties. You looked at his wall, a lot of one fifty nines to one sixty six. That was kind of the sweet spot. He said, "I just can't get it." So when I heard it was for sale, he called me. He said, "Hey, you interested?" And I asked him why he's selling. I said, "I just I can't I can't get above it." And I'm like, "Hmm." It was concerning. Um, I had my doubts, and I said, "You know, let me let me go walk it." And I walked it during late fall. I think it was in January is when I walked it, and there was no food. There was no food for them to handle the winter. And so, one, you have a nutrition problem. Two, you have deer calling home. They're going to move off your farm. And so I was like, man, I love the access. I love the timber. I can see my way to getting some warm season grasses. And I can see to having more food. And if I make a run at this, what this is going to look like, you know, three or four years down the road. And I was dumb enough to buy it. And now <laughs> it's it's my forever farm. I'll never really? get rid of it. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. And it's because, it's because we created some some woody browse, warm season grasses. We buy back a bunch of crops from the farmer and we leave more than they can handle. And now we've got deer that never leave. And why I say they never leave is because we're running cameras and they're right back uh, on the same place for four or five, six years in a row. Mm -hmm. But they used to leave. And um, you've, have you, you've seen the quality of bucks obviously increase too from the sound? A hundred percent. What are, what are some of the deer that you're taking off that farm now as far as size? Just so we can quantify it. Five or six boons, <laughs> um, a couple 200 inches. So it, it blasted through the cap of it blasted, 160, blasted 170. Yeah. Yep. And do you blasted think it was, do you, you think that was solely just based off of improving the habitat and having the food year round? Well, I guess I asked the question back to you. The or farm and stopped, and, and the stopped, it's the same farm. And you stopped shooting the 150s too. And I stopped shooting the 150s and 160s. Wow. I didn't shoot them. And wow. we just poured our sweat equity into habitat is what I poured my sweat equity into and food because mm -hmm. the water was there. It didn't need any adjustments in water. The water you, was already there. You've mentioned water a couple of times. Can you explain what, what water means to you? Cause I think some people, you mentioned ponds. So what is, what is the, yeah. well, you, you got water? it. You got, you know, a pond every 40 acres is a, a water source every 40, if not every 60 acres for sure. Every 80, without a doubt. Um, and when I you say like a pond, like a quarter acre pond, an acre pond, whatever the land well, will allow I, you to do. Whatever you can get done. If you were going to go buy one of those earth ponds, you know, dig a hole, put a tarp, whatever you can get done. Um, you know, I know guys are using those, a lot of plastic tanks these days and filling them up. Hey, if you got the sweat equity and you, and you're that much of a go-getter, have at it, man. Mm -hmm. um, but I like moving water preferably because of um, uh, EHD, mm -hmm. uh, because of the midge. So moving water, there's less possibilities for that. I like creeks because it's constantly moving. It's going to stay longer. I mean, it's not going to freeze like a pond. Mm -hmm. So it's easier to crack through in the wintertime. So I like farms with running water year round. That's, that's what I prefer. Um, we do build ponds in strategic locations. If, if I know that it's not enough, um, we'll go ahead and build a few. Uh, but I really focus on running water. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so in, in uh, talking about that specific farm too, I think it sounds like it's twofold. Number one, you stopped shooting the 150s and 160s, and then you also improved the habitat. If you did not improve the habitat and you stopped shooting the 150s and 160s, do you think you would still, do you think that glass know. ceiling was there? Or do you think it's like you have to do both in order to get to that level? I, I think you got to have age structure and you got to have a good solid food source 365 days a year. Because once they come off the rut, they're run down. 
they're starving. And if you don't give them something to, to replenish their body, well, I'll give you a prime example. The 239, uh, he was he was 185 uh, plus or minus the year before. And this is the same farm? This is the same farm. Okay. Yep. And so what's, what's interesting about that deer, which is going to go for a circle to your question, is um, the biologist, well, let me go back. His left front hoof was curled like a true slipper. I mean, it was curled all the way up. And the biologist believes that, this, this is not my theory, this biologist. Biologist believes that that took him out of the rut because he was not in his healthy state. And so he believes it, that took him out of his rut the year before, which took him into the winter way heavier on body mass, mm. which then when he came out in the spring, all these other deer are putting body mass on to get back up to body weight. He already had his body weight, so he put all of his his growth into his rack. Mm. True or false? I don't know, but it makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's a ginormous jump. Well, that's that's why he yeah. said it. He yeah. says, Greg, these deer don't jump 40, 50 inches in the wild. That's just unheard of. And I said, okay, explain to me why. And he pointed to his leg. Uh -huh. He goes, that's why. And I go, I'm, I'm, I don't get it. He goes, I'm going to bet you he did not rut that year before and he went into the winter really healthy on his body mass yeah so he didn't have body mass well i mean that same theory too they talk about i mean i've talked to i've recorded like a 300 podcast now so like i've talked just okay. just about everyone about everything but you there's a seems to be a tendency of like some of these really high class bucks they kind of pin them as recluse like they don't really hang out with other bucks they kind of typically that by themselves true. and so that I'd theory that. would kind of match up with that though if they're not like running extremely hard, then to that point, they are going into the next year with less stress than a scraggly old four or five year old running around everywhere. All the big deer we have shot, the older they get, the less they move. And the older they get, the less, the more secluse they become. Mm -hmm. they, they come out by themselves. They leave by themselves. They keep distance in food plots. They don't mingle. They're like, you know what? You guys have been there and done this. I, I don't need your games. I'm over here doing my thing. Leave me alone. And I've seen it. I, I don't want to say 100% of the time, but man, it's it's a very, very high percentage. Mm, that's interesting. There has to be something to it. I mean, like, it, it, I, I think it's fair to call it a theory. I think it's fair. I don't, I don't think they like pressure. The older they get, the less they like social pressure. Mm -hmm. They don't like dealing with it. Um, They just, you know, those three and four-year-olds bouncing around, playing around, you know, doing their thing. They look at them like they're idiots. You just watch their body language. It's funny. They look at them like, oh, you're an idiot. I'm just going to go over here and give me my space. Uh -huh. And it, and it's I can't think of a really mature deer of age that hasn't done that. I just can't think of one. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying there isn't one, but I sure. can't think of one. There's something to be said about that then, in my opinion. Yeah. So, I mean. And when yeah. I say mature, I'm talking, you know, five, six. You really see it at six. Sure. You see it at five, but you really see it at six, seven, and eight is really when you see it. And that do you think that inherently makes them easier to kill or no? Oh, it's a catch-22. Um, sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't because um, they are so inclusive that um, they don't put up with much. And so if you screw up, you're probably done because mm. they, they will change their habits. And we had a deer we were chasing this fall that we – probably pushed him a little bit too much. And we, we went on the very first set, almost had him killed on the very first time in. And on the very next night, we had the same win. We went back in there. I thought we we're good as gold. And that sucker looked at our setup and stared us down like he knew we were there. Mm. He knew. And so the night before, was he just out of range? Did he run out of time? Like Bad angle. Bad angle. So you had an opportunity, but it just 
wasn't a good shot typically like Correct. just to, to paint that picture okay so he, his uh, sixth sense kicked in and then he probably reaffirmed it the next day yep and he skirted us a cool 65 70 yards the next night mm. and that was not his typical setup not his typical mo uh-huh it's like he knew yeah see like and then like you <laughs> I struggle with this because then in the same thought, it's like we talk about giving deer too much credit. So then like, then you have that example. Well, but I think, I, I think he, he, after that night, I think he caught our track or somehow, you know, figured it out that these old deer, man, I'm telling you, the older they get, they're just freaking smart. Mm -hmm. um, they like going alone because I think they take in more. They move slower. They they move slower. They take more in their environment. They know when something's out of place. They're more cautious. They move into food plots slower. They move through transitions slower. You ever see a really mature buck do anything fast? Unless he's trying to escape from yeah. something. Yeah, never. They're all so never. methodical. They but stay you there see for a three minutes. or four year old, they'll come bouncing out all, you know, looks yeah. like they're half, you know, on caffeine and just having a good time. Yeah. And then here comes old, you know, sloppier, six, seven, eight years old. And everything's methodical. Mm -hmm. Every, everything he does has a purpose. Those younger deer, they don't have a purpose. Yeah, that's that's a fair assumption. I think that's a very fair assumption. Any other any other lessons that you've just learned in terms of because what is you talk about land being an investment? Is that how you justify uh, doing what you do, like buying farms and and improving them? Because or is it more mainly like is that a secondary item or is that the primary item of like? I really enjoy hunting, so I want. I really enjoy hunting, and oh, by the way, it's a great investment. Okay, but so I've also, you know, it is. But you know, I look at it this way: you got to find out what you really enjoy in life. We're only here for a dance; it's so long. We don't know how long that song's going to play, and if it's really what you love to do and enjoy doing it. I told my wife, I said, I'd probably, I'd probably go broke doing this thing because <laughs> I just really love it. But I, I don't. It's nothing I really want to. Nothing else. I mean, yes, I play golf maybe three or four times a year. I don't go to, you know, I'm not, I just love being outside and I love nature and I love, I love anything tied to a stick and string. I mean, I just, it's, I'm nothing short of a junkie and <laughs> I just love it. And, yeah. you know, I enjoy gun hunting. Yes. We do shoot one or two a year, or we shoot a lot of does for controlling of our, our herd through, through guns. But you, if you pay attention to our Instagram page, 99% of the stuff we harvest is, is with a, with a bow. It's mm -hmm. because I love that experience mm -hmm. when you're inside of 40 yards. I, if there is a drug that can duplicate it, I would buy it on a monthly subscription, <laughs> but there isn't. Yeah. I love that. That's so true. And I, yeah, absolutely. I could not agree more. Um, do you want to talk with this a little bit? So like that farm we were talking about previously, you, ha you didn't have that one for very long. And so do you pull the plug on farms? You're not in, like, uh, what is Have your, I sold farms, you're saying? No, like that farm that we were discussing previously, like before we started recording, you didn't own that farm for very long. So when do you pull the plug on something? Was it just you were spread out and you weren't, you weren't able to enjoy that? Knowledge. 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 When I knew that I tried everything I could possibly do and things didn't change the way I wanted them to change. And I felt like I was running into a wall mm -hmm. and I just beat my head against. And so and I'm like, okay, I, I can't do anything better. It, mm -hmm. it, this is I've taken it to the limits and this is what I'm going to get. Am I satisfied with it or am I not? And mm -hmm. those farms I weren't. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Ralph's statements rings in my head still today, which is if you're not happy, if it's not there, you can't hunt it. So you either make it better 
and it's going to create a ceiling. If that ceiling is not what you want, then you got to go somewhere else. Move on. Move on. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah, I think that's fair. So you've had a lot of professional success. Uh, I did some creeping. Like, I, I think, <laughs> I think like people know you as a deer hunter, but like from a professional standpoint, like you, you're in a, a very senior level, like one of the most senior levels possible. And you've had a lot of success in your career and obviously a lot of success whitetail hunting too. But like, what's a piece of advice that you wish you would have known when you're 25 or 30? And I would gear this more towards professional or personal advice. Um, it, w- w- that's, that's a tough question because we, we all want something different out of life. And I think you have to define that first. And then don't let that deviate from noise, from relatives, family, or whatever your, your circle of friends is. Uh, you know, if it's, if it's to be ultra successful and climb the corporate ladder, go after it. If it's to be your own business, go after it. If it's to be a, a blue collar guy and weld, and that's your passion, go, go do it. My whole thing was uh, I, I've always pushed myself very hard. Um, I'm, I'm a very driven person. I, I just love challenges. I love to get better. Um, I've always told myself early on to bet on myself. And if you control your own destiny, then it's only you to blame. And those are words that I really try to teach my kids as well. Um, because if you're going to put your own destiny in somebody else's hands is you have to accept what you're going to be given. And some people are willing to do that and that's okay. Everybody gets to define their own life, but set your mind to it. If you really want to go after it and more often than not, nobody hard work is, is the key. You got to sacrifice something to get something else. And if you are willing to do that, then you will be successful. If you're not, you probably won't be. It's that simple. Um, my, my favorite saying is, if you're going to bet on yourself, you better you better go swim like you're drowning every single day. And if you swim like you're drowning every single day, you will come out on top. It may take some time, but you will. And then surround yourself with really good people. Mm-hmm. And that's a great example. And I should bring that up. I would not be the deer hunter I am today if I didn't surround myself with better people than, than I was. And when I got into a room with people that were really talented, I listened and I didn't talk. I made mental notes. Some of the things I agreed with, some of the things I didn't. But when I walked out of that room, I was a better hunter than when I came in. Mm-hmm. And that's mentoring is probably the biggest thing, whether it's family, faith, um, business, hunting, find people that you want to become and circle yourself around them and sponge off them the best that you can. And let me tell you, you will become one of them if that's what you want to do. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic advice. So define what you want to do. And surround yourself with people that are doing it. 100%. Mm-hmm. If it's racing cars, then go find somebody who wants to race a car and be the best they can do. If it's a golfer, go do that. If it's a bow hunter, then you know what? Go find somebody that's better than you, that's willing to give you the time and sit down and talk about it and, and you know, tell them what you're doing and why you're doing it and let them blow holes in your boat. Mm-hmm. But have enough pride to put your ego on the back seat, right? If someone tells you you suck, you got you to expect that. And so, you know, this is what I would have done. You should have done this, this, and this. Well, then, you know, learn from that. It's not a bad thing. You know, if you want to get better, pride cannot be the forefront. Ego cannot be the forefront. If you have an ego, you'll never get good at anything in life. Mm-hmm. And that I'm certain of. <laughs> have you seen that throughout your career? Like someone have. that's really talented and they just have an ego and, and it's just like, you're well, speaking of glass ceilings, it's like, that's, 
you won't allow yourself to get better. They will not allow themselves to get better and they become the worst enemy and they, they plateau or they actually revert because mm-hmm. people can't, can't be with them, work mm-hmm. with them or hang around them. Mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll leave you. I'll say one more thing. If you lift other people up, they will lift you up as well. And in the social media world that we are in today, it's always about the I and the me and not about the we. Mm-hmm. And if you can focus on that, you know, like I have never turned down a podcast request mm-hmm. because there's a lot of people in front of me that helped me do what I did. And without Ralph sitting down, without Mark Drury sitting me down, without Jared Lurk, without Tom Ware, without Jay Gregory, without Terry Drury, I mean, I can go right down the list with many people that I've had the, the blessing of, of sitting in a room and talking to and them giving me 30, 40 minutes of their time. I would not be on this podcast today. 100 percent that's and that's my obligation to give back mm -hmm. and i think we need to do more of it Mm -hmm. well i'm glad you you put a token in the land podcast here so a lot of people are hopefully going to learn some items here uh from our conversation today um i know i did i hope so but you know if 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 we didn't cover something you want to know just reach out to my instagram page um at greg glessinger which is spelled g-l-e-s-i-n-g-e-r Hunt Works, H-U-N-T-W-R-X, and throw me a DM and I'll do my best um, to answer it. Um, because I know that was where I was, you know, two decades ago, just thirsting for inf- information. Mm-hmm. And without the individuals that I listed, and many more that I probably haven't, and I apologize, but I would not be sitting in this position today. That's awesome. But find somebody, find somebody that you have something common with, that you really enjoy their company. They have the same hobby if it's bow hunting and you can bounce ideas off of your buddy. If you have that one guy or two guys, it's a hell of a lot more fun. You're going to learn your curve a hell of a lot faster and you're going to achieve something together, which is going to be a lot more fun. Mm -hmm. And that's what this is all about is having fun. You know, we're all chasing mature deer. Some guys saying you're chasing inches. I'm not going to get in this argument, but at the end of the day, we're chasing fun. Mm -hmm. We're chasing experiences. And if you can chase experiences and doing it with somebody you really enjoy being around, life doesn't get any better than that, regardless of the size. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. And to your point, the uh, we're all chasing the full draw moment on a mature buck. And that's that's really if we had to boil down a lot of our actions, that's what it is. <laughs> that's it. I mean, does it get any better when you're a full draw on a nice mature buck? I mean, that feeling when you release the arrow. I mean. It's nuts. It's, it's a drug that is hard to describe. My wife asked me all the time, you know, describe it to me. And I said, I, I just can't. It's just, uh, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. A- anywhere else where people can find you other than your Instagram that you want to plug? Um, we're actually launching a new show this fall, which is called Huntworks. Um, it's going to be on the Sportsman's Channel, third and fourth quarter. Nice. So it's myself, uh, Casey Morgan, uh, Matt Dye. And uh, Adam Keith and those two guys, if, oh, you know, nice. if you know of them, they're Land of Legacy. Yeah. Um, those guys are the other two, uh, the other big half Habitat of the guys. show. Yes, big, big Habitat guys. Uh, Adam Keith was my very first camera guy. No way. Yes, yeah, so that's how we met. And that's, that's, uh, that's cool. Wow. So that's probably 12 or 13 years ago. I'm shooting at the hip, I'm guessing, but I'm mm-hmm. close. And we've been friends ever since. And, uh, when the opportunity came, he called me and we started kicking this around. And so we're going to, we're hopefully going to deliver a show that, uh, is going to be valued to the viewer. It's not about us. It's about you, the viewership. 
And our goal is to uh, unravel everything that I wish I would have known 20 years ago. That's cool. And we're going to really try to teach and show and no secrets going to be uh, held to the chest. We're going to, we're going to talk about it. We're going to show it. Um, it may be something that you can relate to and maybe not, but I'm not going to hold anything back. That's really cool. I look forward to that. That sounds like a fantastic project with the, with the great core group of guys too. Yeah, it's, it's been fun. I've learned a lot. Um, it's been fun. It's, it's, it's different being on this side. So, um, I, I hope, hopefully the public, uh, welcomes a, a change and a, a new way of doing things, but it's up to the viewership to decide if how long we can make the run work. Love it. Awesome. Well, Greg, I appreciate it so much. I appreciate taking the time here to talk. Um, and I encourage people to check out what you have going on. Well, thanks for having me on, man. I greatly appreciate it. We can do it another time. Doors always open. I'm going to take you up on that. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. As always, a five-star written review really helps us out. You can check out our website, whitetail.land, and get some free resources or get connected, share your story. You can get all that information there on whitetail.land. Hope you guys have a great week. Until next time, see you.